0: welcome to steel stories by u.s steel in this podcast we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing renewable world of steel well welcome to another episode of steel stories from u.s steel my name is david kirkpatrick your host and i'm here today with our guest brenda petrolina who has the fantastic title of Director of Global Decarbonization and Program Management at U.S. Steel. And because we're talking today about the whole process and journey of decarbonization in steel, Brenda is clearly a real expert and someone I'm so happy that we have to join us today. So welcome, Brenda.
1: Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here today. Well, so let's start
0: with sort of a big picture view. You know, steel is often called a, quote, hard-to-abate, unquote, industry. What does that mean, and why is steel hard-to-abate?
1: Hard-to-abate, yes. So I'd say steel, cement, chemicals are the top three emitting industries and are among the most difficult to decarbonize. And there are many factors that contribute to heavy industry being hard-to-abate. Technical factors, like the need for high heat Process emissions of carbon dioxide that results from the carbon and feedstocks that we use. Industrial processes are often highly integrated. There are economic factors, low profit margins, capital intensity, long asset life, capital investments can be amortized over wow. decades, you know, trade expenses That's a lot. Yeah, many different aspects.
0: Yeah. So your job is to figure out, in spite of all that, what to do and how is U.S. Steel going to kind of create a pathway to some very ambitious goals that it has. So tell us a little bit about those goals and some of the things that you work on to try to achieve
1: them. Absolutely. We have set a 2030 objective at a 20 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions intensity and a 2050 net zero objective. And we have clear line of sight to that 2030 objective, decreasing the amount of carbon that we generate using existing commercialized technologies. And think of things like process optimization to reduce energy intensity, electrification, incorporating electric arc furnace technology, carbon-free electricity. These are all examples. But between 2030 and 2050 net zero, there is a lot of work to be done. You know, we are casting a wide net evaluating numerous technologies today to move us to that 2050 goal. And we recognize that it's going to involve public-private partnerships to really develop and commercialize those technologies. So additional electric arc furnace implementation, future mini mill developments, DRI, direct-reduced iron, is a big topic of discussion.
0: Let's get to direct-reduced iron in a minute, because I think what we're going to be talking about today, I'm so impressed with U.S. Steel's goals and promise to be net zero by 2050, considering how hard that is. And today we're going to be talking about U.S. Steel's ambitions and process, as well as the industry at large, which you're very knowledgeable about, because these issues cut across the entire steel industry. And we will go down and get pretty deep on things like electric arc furnaces, direct reduced iron, and help the listener understand what those things are. But, you know, one of the things that I find so intriguing and challenging and, you know, you could even say vexing about this problem is, you know, people love to criticize industries that are high polluting. But the reality is we cannot make the energy transition without steel. It's required in almost every part of the renewable energy infrastructure we have to build. So steel cannot go away. But the reality is right now, it's hard to make it without producing a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So I just find that such an interesting dichotomy.
1: Well, and if you think about the steel industry has made great strides. There's been technology advancements involving environmental control practices that have really helped the steel industry significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, I saw an interesting statistic recently that the North American steel industry has reduced energy consumption by 60 percent since World War II. And we continue to advance to net zero. And, and you've talked about, you know, yes, we're hard to abate. But it is essential to this low carbon future. It's an essential part of the energy transition, the future technologies. You look at wind, solar, transformers, electric vehicles, all contain steel.
0: Yeah. So, Brenda, what are some of the challenges that you face, the barriers, as you're thinking through all the issues that face U.S. steel and the steel industry more generally?
1: Absolutely. We talked about our objectives in getting to 2050 net zero. Between 2030 and 2050, there's definitely a lot of work to be done. Technology scaling and commercialization are critical. You know, for example, there's a lot of different carbon capture, utilization, pilot demonstration scale technologies that are out there, but they handle a relatively low volume of carbon dioxide when you compare that to that of a blast furnace. Infrastructure is also important. You know, if we were going to capture carbon at our facility, we would take that carbon to the fence line. We need the infrastructure to be able to transport and sequester it. And same for hydrogen. If we wanted to use significant volumes of hydrogen in our facility, we would need that infrastructure that allows us to receive that hydrogen at our facility. Electric grid improvements important as we move forward in the future. And also, again, I think scaling is probably the most important one. So really,
0: for the steel industry to make the changes that it has to make, in a sense, our whole energy infrastructure has to evolve along with it. Because, boy, CO2 infrastructure, hydrogen infrastructure, transmission, all these things are big challenges, which are gaining attention in the United States more than they have probably ever in history But we are still sort of early on our national decarbonization journey, and that gets very bound up with what's happening with steel, clearly. I just have to say, it must be something that management of U.S. steel really thinks about a lot to have a net zero goal. That means like so many things in the company's processes and infrastructure of its own have to change. So this is a big, big deal. Is this something that gets discussed a lot at the executive level in U.S. steel now?
1: Absolutely. We have a chief strategy and sustainability officer, Rich Ruhoff, and the strategy and the sustainability are very tied because you really think about all of those things have to come together in order for us to hit that 2050 net zero goal.
0: It's really interesting. Well, you know, I think most people may not understand how steel is made and the very fundamental differences between several of the methods that are used. So maybe you should quickly tell us about that. You know, we know about blast furnaces. Tell us a little bit about how that still plays a role and what else is out there.
1: Absolutely. At U.S. Steel, we have basically two different processes for making steel. We have the integrated route and the mini-mill route. So the integrated route, this process relies on blast furnaces and basic oxygen furnaces, while the mini-mill process uses electric arc furnaces. So each of these processes uses different materials and energy sources and thereby generating various levels of greenhouse gas emissions. So when we talk about integrated steel making, we use iron ore and coke, which is a purified form of coal and some recycled steel. And that iron ore is reduced and melted in the blast furnace to form liquid iron and using coke as the reductant and that primary source of heat. So the liquid iron is either solidified as you hear pig iron or converted to steel along with steel scrap in the basic oxygen furnace. Where in a mini mill, we use electric arc furnaces to melt scrap, which is recycled steel. Steel is 100% recyclable. And we often use scrap substitutes like pig iron. You hear of direct reduced iron, hot briquetted iron. And electricity is really that main source of energy for that process.
0: Right. Whereas in the blast furnace, a lot of the energy comes from burning the coke inside the furnace. So it's like a giant cauldron where the materials inside the cauldron are actually incinerating in order to produce the result, which is slightly different in the electric arc furnace. And one of the things I did just hear Rich talking recently, your strategy and sustainability officer, and he talks a lot about how the US is actually ahead of Europe in this decarbonization journey in a fundamental way, because there is a far larger percentage of steel in the United States is made. With electricity already compared to Europe where electricity is more expensive and that's one of the reasons for that dichotomy.
1: And that's right. And when you think about CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, in general, blast furnace type operations, it's about two tons of CO2 per ton of raw steel. And when you move to an electric arc furnace, it's about 04 tons of CO2 per ton of raw steel. So a significant difference in the greenhouse gas emissions. Both processes today produce products that are important to our customers.
0: Right. But if electric arc furnaces are only producing one fifth the CO2, there's obviously a good reason to move in that direction. And I guess that's one reason why direct reduce iron is so important, because that is a way of achieving something that otherwise happens in the blast furnace in a separate process that's separated out and then use that reduced iron in the electric arc furnace, as I understand it, instead of recycled scrap. Is that correct?
1: So when we think about the different raw materials that are needed for steel production, in a basic oxygen furnace, you're using iron ore, right? You're using different versions of that for different processes. It could be ore concentrate, center, lump ore, blast furnace pellets. Now, in an electric arc furnace, You're using scrap, but you're also supplementing that with direct reduced iron or pig iron in place of the scrap. So a combination of those. And there's a lot of discussion on direct reduced iron. When we think about the use of hydrogen in the future, a lot of discussion on the hydrogen hubs that are going to be implemented in the U.S., direct reduced iron could be a potential significant user of that hydrogen starting off with natural gas and then transitioning that process to use hydrogen when it's readily available and at cost.
0: So hydrogen is not being used much, if at all, in the United States to produce direct-reduced iron, but that's a big goal of the industry.
1: And that is part of our roadmap. We don't produce direct reduced iron today. We purchase that, but we do say that we will produce that in the future. It's a matter of when and where. As the feedstock, we can, and the technology exists today to be able to start that process off on natural gas and then transitioning to hydrogen when it's readily available.
0: Right, because the natural gas or the hydrogen are used to heat the ore and reduce it. And I understand that's by not taking it quite to the point of melting, but just close to it, and then it basically becomes a purer version of iron, which is more readily utilized in the furnaces. And today, I believe natural gas is used a lot in the industry, although you don't do that. And hydrogen would essentially play the same role as natural gas in that direct reduced iron process once we have a hydrogen infrastructure, which we'll get to the Inflation Reduction Act And it's huge subsidies and efforts around a lot of these things, but especially hydrogen in a minute, because I know that's a key pathway where maybe hydrogen is going to become more available. You mentioned carbon capture. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that is a near term technology that does exist now. And is that something that you all expect to put more to use in coming years?
1: And that's definitely one of the technologies that we are evaluating. We look at that more beyond the 2030 timeframe. We are looking at different types of technology today. I'd say carbon utilization technology is very interesting to us, being able to capture that carbon and use that carbon to create another value-added product. So I think we're going to need them all. There's lots of carbon out there. We're going to need the carbon utilization technologies. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about the infrastructure and the hub through the bipartisan infrastructure law.
0: Yeah, and there's other forms. I mean, nuclear, for example, as I understand it, is an emissions-free energy source that could potentially be utilized a lot more, not to mention wind and solar, which I think you're also using, there's a big renewable energy facility going up, I believe, right next to one of your major electric arc furnace facilities in order to provide the power.
1: Yes, OCLA Arkansas.
0: Yeah, we'll get into some of that a little more when we get into these scope one, two, and three challenges. So the idea in getting to net zero by 2050 is the kind of via a combination of changing the process of making steel and when carbon dioxide might still be produced even at that point, capturing it and storing it or selling it or one way or another, getting rid of it. And again, we get into this issue that even if you do capture the carbon, it's not clear, as you said before, what you're going to be able to do with it. There is a market for CO2, and also it's often just pumped into the ground and sequestered. But that takes its own set of infrastructure, which Again, the IRA is targeting, but in general doesn't exist at scale. Is that fair to say?
1: That's correct. And talking through the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, significant opportunities for decarbonization under that umbrella. There's an industrial decarbonization program that has a combined $6.3 billion to support the advancement of these transformational technologies that are going to be necessary to decarbonize the industrial sector.
0: Yeah. Let's get back to that again later, but because we have these hydrogen hubs and there's a whole lot of, I think even they use the word hub relating to CO2 in some instances. But the technologies that are already there that you can lean on now, a lot of them are just simply improving the efficiency of your existing processes, maybe making a larger percentage of your mix electric arc production.
1: Carbon-free electricity.
0: Right. Taking electricity from the grid that's itself carbon-free, that can significantly reduce your net profile. But maybe this is a good time to talk about this sometimes complicated portfolio of emissions types that companies have to think about, which is called Scope 1, Scope 2, and Scope 3. In steel, explain what those terms mean. Sure.
1: I think if we start with the basic understanding of greenhouse gases, right, these are gases that trap heat in the atmosphere. And these gases, uh, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrogen oxide, fluorocarbons, these are greenhouse gases. So scope one are the direct greenhouse gas emissions that result from the industry or the steel company in their operations. So on-site fossil fuel combustion, fleet fuel consumption. Those are examples of scope one. And we've talked about scope two as well, because these are the indirect greenhouse gas emissions that come from purchased energy and steam. So if you can purchase emission-free energy, you're reducing those scope two emissions. Now, scope three, these are indirect greenhouse gas emissions that result from activities from assets that are not owned or controlled by the reporting company, the industry, the steel company. And these impact the value chain. So these can be purchased goods, services, raw materials, fuel. And scope three emissions are comparatively more difficult to measure and control because they are not generated by the source. They're generated by third parties.
0: Yeah, they're generated either by your suppliers or your customers. And I'm sure they're extremely hard to measure. And this is a increasingly complex and controversial area, even though it's indispensable for all of us to think about. One thing I think maybe would be useful, Brenda, is for you to define, again, Scope 2.
1: Okay, so Scope 2 are indirect greenhouse gas emissions from purchased energy and steam. And we've been talking about that. And these are, you know, the renewable energy, carbon-free emission sources will help with that Scope 2 emissions.
0: Right. And of course, since steel is such an energy intensive industry that is a big part of your overall carbon footprint greenhouse gas footprint absolutely yeah and all these things have to be addressed in order to get to net zero this is one of the things that makes it so challenging it's such a multi-dimensional set of challenges so you're working on your own internal processes You're working with your suppliers, you're working with your energy producers, you're working with your customers. That's a lot for the director of global decarbonization to have to think about, right?
1: You know, and our customers, our investors, regulatory bodies, ratings agencies, they are really demanding this increased transparency into our greenhouse gas footprint. And this includes those value chain emissions. Yeah, and of course, since most
0: companies are increasingly focusing on their emissions scope one, two, and three... You are the Scope 3 emissions for some of your customers.
1: Exactly.
0: So are they coming to you and saying, hey, what's going on with your own efforts to reduce? Because that fits into our own profile.
1: Absolutely. Our customers, our investors, both are interested in our greenhouse gas emissions as well as ratings agencies. And we work very closely with our suppliers to get an understanding of where they are in this journey and understand their greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Right. Like I know, for example, GM is a big customer of yours, and I believe they're a customer of a kind of more green type of steel you're already making that they are sort of helping seed the market for by being a buyer, even though it might cost a little more today. Is that a fair statement?
1: Absolutely. And I would say that General Motors, we do have a supply agreement with General Motors and they are purchasing our line of low carbon steel, which is called Vertex. And it can reduce carbon emissions up to 70 to 80 percent from the integrated steels and also can be up to 90 percent recycled content.
0: Well, it's interesting. So. In helping them achieve their scope three reductions, you're reducing your own emissions. So this is one of the reasons why I feel as industry across the board becomes more focused on these issues, which seems to be happening across the economy at a pretty rapid rate, there really is a kind of mutually reinforcing effect that starts to come into play. Is that something that you feel?
1: Absolutely. I would say some of our suppliers are not as far along on the journey. Right. So it's also educating them along in this process, really providing them the tools and the education on how to go about this.
0: Right. Because when you talk about your suppliers, I mean, you also operate mines and you buy inputs from other lines as well. And you have to work with all those suppliers and ask, are you the one who goes to them and says, hey, what's your pathway to decarbonization? Is that part of what you do, or do you work with others who do that?
1: It's not part of what I do, but it is part of what our purchasing organization does in working closely with those suppliers.
0: So it's really a whole new world for any industrial company, but the challenges are so interestingly multifaceted when it comes to steel. Let's talk about the difference in steel between net zero and carbon neutral. How do you think about that? Sometimes we hear the term green steel. I think you'd love to explain that also.
1: Carbon neutral is really balancing greenhouse gas emissions by offsetting an equivalent amount of carbon for the amount produced. So carbon neutrality does not necessarily require a commitment to reduce emissions just to provide and obtain the required offset. So an offset is a reduction or removal of emissions of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases that really is made in order to compensate for emissions elsewhere. So think about reforestation, forest conservation, those are examples. Where net zero is a commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions with the goal of balancing the emissions produced and the emissions removed. So for US Steel, our goal is net zero. We plan to achieve net zero, and we've talked about ways to looking at that by reducing greenhouse gas emissions across our existing and future operations as much as possible. There may be a small amount at the end that we will have to close that gap with carbon offsets and credits, but we're really focused on reduction of direct emissions, and we talked about the use of carbon-free energy.
0: So you all at U.S. Steel are members of the Responsible Steel Coalition, which we've conducted an interview with the leader of that group in an earlier episode. So tell us a little bit about what it means for responsible steel to certify a plant and how do you work with responsible steel and how are they helping in this whole process?
1: In April of 2022, Responsible Steel certified our Big River Steel Mill in Oceala, Arkansas, and making it the first North American site to meet that standard. And again, you're familiar with Responsible Steel with Annie Heaton in the previous steel stories, but Responsible Steel Standard is really designed to support responsible sourcing and production of steel. So a very important certification for our facility, but there have been additional criteria that have been Added and included in the standard so that the product can now be certified and this is certified steel they call it certified steel so greenhouse gas emissions intensity threshold levels have been identified based on a percentage of scraps. So they have four different performance levels that they've defined, basic all the way through net zero. And we've talked about our low carbon steel, which is Vertex, and that's about a 70 to 80% reduction from the integrated steels. And we're evaluating that product certification, but really putting us on a path to have that common definition of what is green steel.
0: Every steelmaker is not a member of responsible steel, but do you see the industry as a whole really kind of moving en masse in that direction? Is that a common goal that pretty much is shared across the industry generally?
1: Absolutely. And, And moving towards a common definition, I don't believe we're all aligned on what platform that will be, but absolutely recognizing that we do need a common definition. We need to have a standard that really defines what is green steel. Right. Let's talk about
0: policy and how policy can help or possibly hinder your efforts. I think at the moment in the United States, policy is moving in an extremely positive direction with a number of major congressional actions in the last couple of years, particularly the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. How have they changed the landscape for U.S. Steel and how are they helping you on this decarbonization journey?
1: As we talked about briefly, significant opportunity in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act for decarbonization it was at $6.3 billion to advance transformational technologies to decarbonize. But the bipartisan infrastructure law also has nine and a half billion for clean hydrogen initiatives. There's over 10 billion for carbon capture utilization and storage development. And this hydrogen hub implementation, in my mind, will act as a catalyst for technology implementation. It really starts that hydrogen economy, providing hydrogen at scale at a competitive cost. And if natural gas is used as a feedstock to produce that hydrogen, then carbon capture needs to be part of that solution. So infrastructure will be part of that solution. And we're always talking about this chicken and the egg. Do you start Capturing carbon, you can't capture carbon until you have infrastructure. So the bipartisan infrastructure law is really that catalyst, really solving some of that chicken and egg. It's bringing in the infrastructure.
0: What is a hydrogen hub? And I know that U.S. Steel has sort of cooperated with the articulation of that.
1: The bipartisan infrastructure law, I think it was about $8 billion for various hydrogen hubs across the United States. And the applications have already been completed for that. But the hydrogen hubs really set up Production. So they balance the supply and demand for hydrogen across the U.S. So they will enable our plants that are within the vicinity of these hubs to have access to hydrogen. And again, if it's a natural gas region, to potentially have the infrastructure for carbon transportation and sequestration. So very important. And we have supported the hubs across the U.S. in the areas in which we operate.
0: So a hub might end up being located quite near to one of your facilities since you could be a huge customer for it.
1: We are hopeful that they will be located in the facilities in which we operate.
0: Right. So you're really trying to encourage them to locate them near where you would use the hydrogen. And that could be for the direct reduced iron process, for example. Is there other application of hydrogen beyond direct reduced iron that might be critical for the listener to understand?
1: We do use hydrogen across. All of our facilities and many of our finishing operations do use hydrogen. So it is used today. I would say the significant potential user to really spike that demand in the region could be the direct reduced iron process.
0: Right. And one of the ways to think about the CO2 challenge is that, along with many other big industrial companies, you're very aggressively seeking to reduce your emissions but if the co2 transportation and sequestration or usage infrastructure doesn't come into exist it could really slow down your own ability to make the transformation is that something you all think about
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's where we really talked about this chicken and egg scenario, right? And I think it's going to be important. And again, these hubs, you know, I'm optimistic. There are areas that hydrogen is going to be produced using natural gas. And if that's the case, then carbon capture is required to be part of that solution. So the infrastructure to transport and sequester that carbon will be part of that package. So as an industrial user, we now may have access to that infrastructure that would allow us to capture carbon and then transport and sequester.
0: So would you say that the extraordinary federal commitment that's gone into energy infrastructure in these multiple bills is really kind of going to change the landscape and make it easier for you to achieve your own goals long term?
1: I believe it's the catalyst, right? I believe it really is the catalyst to get this transition started and to really start the hydrogen economy in the U.S. And it may enable us to be able to implement technology easier, right, to be able to try that infrastructure.
0: One thing that I would love to have heard a little more about, you know, we talked about GM. But, you know, I think this issue of your customers coming to you, you had said this in one of our prep calls, that your customers really are increasingly coming to you and asking to have meetings and asking to really get detail about what you're doing so they can understand how it affects their own goals, right?
1: We do have numerous requests from customers, and many will ask us to fill out different surveys, different questionnaires, participate in meetings, really to understand what we're doing on. A full sustainability path. So not just greenhouse gas emissions, but what we're doing in the ESG aspect. So a lot of interest in that.
0: And metal social and governance.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for stating that. You know, we've talked about the green steel or customers willingness to pay more, right? To pay a premium for that green product. And not all customers are at that point yet, right? But they're beginning on that journey to ask us questions, to understand more. It will cost more to implement decarbonization technologies. And we're not quite there yet with customer interest and the willingness to pay that premium. But I will tell you a lot of interest in learning more about what we're doing from an ESG perspective.
0: Yeah, that was a really good thing to explain, by the way. And it's also interesting, though, with hydrogen, the subsidies are so gigantic that the cost of hydrogen really could be low enough that the cost of green steel in some instances might not be a lot more. You know, I've been talking to a lot of hydrogen innovators right now, and they're so excited because the government's basically made such huge subsidies that hydrogen could almost be free to produce at a certain point. But that's another discussion entirely.
1: David, I think that's important, but we have to be able to do this in a way that the system is sustained when those subsidies right. go away. So the hydrogen hub implementation... We need to make sure that we incentivize the demand side, right? So to use hydrogen, how do we implement the technologies that will enable the use of hydrogen?
0: Right. And green hydrogen, ideally. Well, are there any challenges that you face or issues that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about relating to this decarbonization journey that we haven't touched on?
1: You know, I think one thing to think about the importance of collaboration and partnership right? So in order to advance these technologies, we do need to partner. We need public and private partnerships to advance the technology, to commercialize the technology. And we have significant interests in U.S. steel, as do other steel companies, to partner with us. It could be technology provider, universities, to really help us on this journey. And that's going to be really important to hit that 2050 net zero.
0: Right. And I'm sure you're going to find yourself collaborating in new and sometimes innovative ways with your customers and your suppliers. I mean, you're collaborating even more than you, I mean, obviously collaborate to some degree to buy from somebody or sell to somebody, but to have a deeper level of integration in your whole process thinking, it's kind of exciting in a way. It, It makes the whole ecosystem of an industry more integrated, really.
1: Right. And you think about the collaboration, it's not just on the final product. It's the development of that product, uses for that product, uses for carbon, universities and developing technologies. So it's a very exciting time.
0: Yeah, it really is great. Well, congratulations on the great work you're doing, Brenda. And thank you so much for joining us today on Steel Stories. We really learned a lot. So I'm David Kirkpatrick, and thank you all. And join us again in the very near future for another episode of Steel Stories.
1: Steel Stories is brought to you by US Steel.
0: To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for US Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at US Steel, thanks for listening.